Hey everybody, Rob North here from the Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades podcast. Just saying that if you like what we do and you'd like to support us financially and get access to exclusive content, you can go to patreon.com slash trrpod. As always, hold fast and on with the show. Now I'm no medical professional and I don't claim to know a whole lot about coronavirus, but I know one thing for certain now that coronavirus has appeared in Pennsylvania and it's, it's, it's appeared over on the Philly end of the state. Which is the least surprising thing about where it would pop up. I know. But what's, what I know for sure is that the one person who is immune is that dude who ate horse poop. Oh, the Philly, the... Not was that that he was an Eagles fan. Super Bowl. That was the yes, AFC he, Championship. Oh God! Oh. Now, he could be patient zero. Mm. He, he could be typhoid Mary. Oh God! <laughs> my my favorite moment of that video is uh, the rest of it's disgusting. But when he whenever he offers everybody and he else, stops and goes, "Who's next?" and everyone's looking at him like, mm. "That guy got arrested yeah. later that day, but not for that." Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's illegal to eat horse poop. No. It's no, questionable. No. Yeah, like I heard he got arrested. I'm like, that doesn't seem right. And then it was for like, like he fell through like a plate glass window or something. I was like, that sounds more right. Yeah, he got a drunken disorderly or something. That like sounds that. more Philadelphia. Now, I will say this about coronavirus. I, You know, the CDC came out and said, you're supposed to be clean shaven as far as your beard is concerned. Kyle's the only that one whole, that was going to survive. That, that whole list. Well, I can tell you as the... Current leader of the Bob Crane sex cult. I've sent an email (laughs) to Centers for Disease Control to find out if it's only face beards. I haven't gotten a reply yet, but we're waiting. I mean, this might be our hail bop. This could be it. This could be it. This could be the sign. Does that mean I get to be the one guy who says, no, guys, I'll I'll tell the story later. So we we know it's going to transmit through the collar. Does it transmit through the cuffs is what you're saying. Exactly. I'm just excited that, like, now, as a millennial, like travel is super cheap, and I might die. It's two of my favorite things just rolled into one. Well, we were going to plan a super tri- cheap trip to Italy, but then they decided today to close. Yeah, now we can't to get to Italy. We could probably take a pretty cheap cruise. <laughs> and, then, and then, like now with cruises, like did you know? And this to begin with. This is not. This is not a gross exaggeration. They do not test cruise ships for norovirus. That's why everybody dies after their fucking cruise because you don't have to check. You do have to check every hotel in the United States. It doesn't matter how seedy they are, like even the hourly ones. You do not have to check a cruise ship for norovirus. Do the people on cruise ships die immediately afterwards because of norovirus, or do they die immediately afterwards because it's old people and they're on death's door anyway? And we didn't even get to talking about how this just kills old people. Like, this is going to tip the election just one way or another. We just don't know which way the hammer is going to fall. Especially when all the candidates die. Right. I was going to say, who's going to run? I might get Social Security. <laughs> no, don't be ridiculous. I don't know that. I mean, you would want Social Security, security you socialist it's liberal. People, it's going to hit people over seventy incredibly hard, and it's going to make a huge dent in the young Republicans. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! And with that note, hi everybody. Welcome to Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. I'm Rob North. I am your co-host, Coronavirus Miller. I am your resident there sailor. There is a Chris in there. There is a Chris in there. I yeah. see what I did there. It was alliterative. It's a virus without Chris. <laughs> <laughs> and I take my leave of you. 
Uh, this is your neighborhood sailor, Michael Ornett. I'm Kyle Graper. You sure the Jackie are. Robinson of Stormtroopers. <laughs> oh, oh man, I'm Christ. so glad you brought that back. I'm so oh, we're just throwing, we're just throwing all kinds boundaries. of old jokes out in here. Kyle Graper, breaking boundaries and breaking hearts. Everything, everything out in the ether. So our topic today is uh, something that's near and dear to my heart. Uh, something I, I really, really love. And I, I, Kyle, I want to get your opinion on this because you are the cinephile among us. Um, how do you feel about uh, caper movies, specifically British caper movies, stuff like specifically, Guy Ritchie, I mean, virtual Italian job. Layer like Cake that. is probably one of my top five favorite films ever. Big fan of Layer Cake. I'm a Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels mm-hmm. fan. Snatch is probably better than Lockstock, but Lockstock's a fantastic film. Yeah, I gotta go with Lockstock. Yeah, I like it. I, I I like it. It's it's just a lot of fun. Um, Sexy Beast was totally underrated. Dude, Sexy Beast is so good. Sexy Beast is basically the adaptation of what we're about to talk about right now. Pretty much, pretty much. Because what we're about to talk about is uh, we're talking about a great British thing. It's not a fucking Bake Off because it's not wait about... wait shit, shit it's not because I watched twenty four hours of it on Netflix this week. And you grew as a person. <sighs> They're so nice. I don't know how to process it. Didn't we try to do one here? Wasn't there? Wasn't Spice Adams on the on the American one? Because Spice know. Adams was on something. I mean, I didn't watch it, but I wait. So who the hell is Spice Adams? Is Anthony Spice Star? Adams. You got like oh, that's right. You guys don't watch sports. Uh, Padre, you want to help out? Linebacker for the Niners, defensive. Or he was defensive tackle. Nothing. He does Nothing. all the memes. You're the biggest. He does all the memes. <laughs> and that's saying well, a lot. At the yeah. bake-off, do they make flan? Oh, I'm sure they have at some point. Kyle. I've literally never watched it. <laughs> I'm sorry. Did you just lie again? What are you, Mike? <laughs> yeah, we're not talking about a great British. I didn't lie. I guessed. <laughs> we're not talking about a great British British Bake Off. We're not talking about uh, Europe leaving the EU, which I refer to as the Great British Break Off. We are uh, talking about the Great British Train Robbery. So the Great British Train Robbery, if you don't know, was a true caper of a crime that took place in 1963 when a team of Cockney ne'er-do-wells intercepted and robbed a mail train, making off with nearly 2.6 million pounds, worth nearly 72 million in today's cash, which was the largest robbery in British history up to that point, and most of the money was never recovered. It would turn into a web of conspiracy and prison breaks, with one character in particular becoming quite the popular fugitive. So before we get into the story, I'd like to address our primary sources for this episode. The first is The Great Train Robbery by a British journalist named Tim Coates. And this isn't so much a book as it is a collection of articles, magazine articles, newspaper articles, uh, print, some stuff off of websites that's more recent. It's like an anthology collection of reporting on the incident. Um, As such, it doesn't really have a particular flavor to it. It is more like a big piece of journalism rather than a... uh, a lot of books about true crime. Um, but it does, does give you a very, very good sense about uh, what the public zeitgeist was like after this event and uh, the lives of the men involved afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and everything else pretty much comes from a variety of British newspaper magazine articles that are both contemporary with the events and published well after the fact. So, gentlemen, any points of order to get to before we roll into this story. Uh, yeah, Spice Adams was the host of the Great American Baking Show. It was announced uh, September 21st, 2017. Thank God I know that now. I can't believe you guys don't know who Spice Adams is. 
I had him sign a meme. It's it's framed in my office. I'll get it after the show. I remember he was the, went to Chick Fil A and got some fries. Oh, that's now I know. <laughs> the the laugh, the blink meme, where he like laughs his kid and it gives him the shifty eyes. That's Anthony Spice Adams. I'm never going okay. on the internet again. Well, the fact that I have a synapse in my brain now that has that's taking up space, knowing that Spice Adams is the king of memes. Is something well, I, mean, I can't he, get rid of yet. He's also a Penn State grad, drafted by the Niners, played for the Bears. Okay, so don't get uh, don't go near him in the shower. Uh, you tell still, him, it's you still, tell him this grown ass man. Still sounds like the name of a porn star from the nineties. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. No, nothing. Uh, you guys are fucking useless. <laughs> just, doing things, just doing things with really long fingernails that you would never expect somebody with really long fingernails to actually want to do. I like that you immediately went to a a fingernail dude when I use the name Spice. I'm proud of you, man. I'm not no I'm not dude. <laughs> sure. Well, he said he. Gender is <laughs> just a construct. <laughs> I'm just saying, what you do in your own time, it's your own business. But when here, it's 1962 you. turned to 1963. <laughs> Britain was in something of a funk. Post-war economic recovery had stalled somewhat, and she was watching her empire fall apart piece by piece. The gaudy, wild days of hippies and the mods hadn't really started up yet, and neither had the music and art to go with it. One thing had been going strong, however, especially in London. Crime. And it was in the criminal underworld that a plan had been hatched. An unnamed senior security officer with the Royal Mail, Britain's Postal Service, who was fed up with his job and needed a big payday, had mentioned to a friend of his, a law clerk named Brian Field, that a mail train traveling from Glasgow, Scotland to London was going to be carrying quite the haul of banknotes on their, on their way south to the Mint in London to be processed and disposed of. Field introduced the security man to a couple of friends of his, whom he had previously helped to defend in court, named Gordon Goody and Buster Edwards, who decided that a big score was the perfect way to wrap up the summer. So Goody and Edwards then set about bringing some friends into the scheme and putting together a team. And here's where we introduce our cast of characters. They were Bruce Reynolds, a.k.a. Napoleon who became the scheme's mastermind, a petty criminal who deserted the British Army and had spent time in and out of prison for various thefts and muggings. But by the age of 31, he'd become the leader of a little group known as the Southwest Gang that had managed some fairly big scores robbing security vans and river barges. Douglas Goody, known as Gordon, who we already mentioned, who was also a member of the Southwest Gang and became the deputy and organizer to Reynolds. At 33, had washed out of the Royal Navy in the early 50s and had turned to a life of petty crime, all while still living with his mom in South London. There was Charles Chaz Wilson. He's the most dangerous of the bunch, prone to violent outbursts and starting bar brawls. Kicked out of the British Army in 1950 for fighting too much, he'd also turned to crime early on, and in between short stints in prison for assaults and small-time thievery, he'd married and had three kids, all while working in his in-law's grocery store. He used his ill-gotten proceeds to buy into various gambling schemes and was also one of the organizers of the robbery crew, as well as the treasurer, quote-unquote, who would divide the money and make sure everyone got their proper share. He had Ronald Edwards, a.k.a. Buster, who we'd also mentioned, 32. He'd found honest work in a sausage factory out of school until he started stealing meat to sell on the post-war black market. He'd been kicked out of the Royal Air Force for stealing and selling cigarettes, he became a member of the Southwest Gang, doing a lot of small robbery jobs, but he also maintained an honest living, running alternatively a pub in Lambeth and a flower stall outside Waterloo Station. There was Brian Field, the law clerk. He was only 29, and he wasn't a member of the gang, 
but he'd made quite a handsome amount of money on the side selling information about his firm's wealthy clients to gangs who would then rob their houses and steal their cars. He'd served in combat in the Korean War, but had been discharged from the British Army soon after the armistice for exhibiting, quote, very poor character. So there's a mysterious character, simply known as the Ulsterman, who was the postal security worker who came to the gang with the knowledge of the train's contents. If we're going to keep talking about, like, putting together a crew, we're getting some, like, gangster movie music. Go ahead. <laughs> Older than most of the Southwest gang in his mid-40s, he was from Northern Ireland and was probably either named Patrick McKenna or Sam Osterman. Though he wouldn't take part in the actual robbery, he would receive an equal share, as, an equal share to everyone else who did, seeing as how it was he who turned the gang on to the word about the train. There's Roy James, a.k.a. The Weasel, 28 years old. Who was Kyle is losing his fucking mind over there. <laughs> who was a getaway driver and in charge of uncoupling the necessary carriages, along with an associate named Bill Flossie Jennings, a.k.a. Harry Smith, who would simply disappear after the crime. There was John Daly, not the golfer, a.k.a. Patty. I like to think it was still the same guy. <laughs> oh, that wouldn't have been He chucked a nine iron at somebody. <laughs> <laughs> he was the lookout guy. He was just out there smoking. Hey, man. Somebody's coming. <laughs> <laughs> At 32 years old, he was another getaway driver who would be part of the team in charge of actually stopping the train, and he was the brother-in-law of gang leader Bruce Reynolds. There was Jimmy White, 43. He was a solitary thief and associate of Bruce Reynolds who was brought in to also help uncouple the carriages. He was a veteran of the Savage Battle of Arnhem in World War II. He was also the quartermaster in charge of acquiring all the equipment the robbery crew would need. Now, the Southwest Gang and their associates had a problem, though. They didn't actually know how to stop a moving train. So they contacted another gang of robbers, associates of theirs known as the South Coast Raiders, and brought them in on the job. They included Roger Cordry, 42, who was an electronics expert and knew how to manipulate train line signals to actually bring the thing to a halt. Now we also had a whole bunch of guys who would serve as muscle, including Bobby Welch, age 34, Tommy Wisby, age 33, James Big Jim Hussey, 31, Alias Danny Pembroke, a.k.a. alias Frank Monroe, 27, real name unknown, and a fifth goon whose name has never been discovered, nor his age, nor anything about him. Witnesses put him at the scene, and there were fingerprints of his discovered at their hideout, but no one who was caught gave the police a name for the man, and he simply vanished into history. Finally, we have another pair of individuals to round out the crew. The first was a gentleman named Ronnie Biggs, 34. He had been dishonorably discharged from the Royal Air Force in 1949 for leaving guard duty to break into a local pharmacy, and then became a car thief and housebreaker before doing a stretch in Wandsworth Prison after the failed robbery of a South London bookie. Upon his release, Ronnie trained as a carpenter, got married, had some kids, and was doing a pretty good job of going straight until he started doing some work on the house of a train driver who was about to retire. The guy was 67 years old and was referred to both as Old Pete and Stan Agate. Stan <laughs> And somebody who... And there's two sides to this part. What a nickname. And there's two sides to this part of the story. Either Old Pete, a.k.a. Stan Agate, contacted Ronnie Biggs to help him out, or Ronnie Biggs was the one who got word, while still in prison, doing a short stretch, that they were planning this robbery, and he had to bring on somebody who knew how to drive a train, and so he brings in Old Pete slash Stan Agate. Those names have nothing in common no. at all. They really don't. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of these, a lot of the nicknames that we're using were the aliases that they used after the fact, or well, I mean, during this this whole caper, before they hopped into their 
like electric colored, uh, like who are they? Fiat five hundreds or no? They're mini Coopers. They're, yeah. they're mini Coopers, and then spread no, around through the, the city. The Italian job. Oh, that's right. right. They did wires. actually have basically spray painted yellow Lamborghinis. <laughs> well, it was a lorry. They spray painted yellow. Like which, gaudy yellow. We'll yeah, get to that. We'll, we'll get to that. Well, what I find interesting is is as cool as that intro of the gang was. It loses something because oh, he did a stint here. He was dishonorably discharged from this. One was a freaking florist. Yeah. Was one was a hairdresser. Yeah. And one sold, and I quote, bric a brac. <laughs> <laughs> he ran Some, in the strip district. Somebody's mum was involved. Yeah. <laughs> there were actually, they think, a few mums involved in this. Farmers, uh, farmers' mums. I mean, well, these are South London mums. These are these are for, formidable. Southies. These are formidable rag women. <laughs> so, oh, you need a getaway driver. Go get Ellen's Ellen's boy. Oh, we that are we putting together off. a crew of moms? No. So we have. Elaine. Somebody please take Chris's phone away. Elaine, George. <laughs> stop. Fucking stop. You're done. You're done. No, no. So, I'm going to play this song so many fucking times. Here, what's your Wi Fi? So, 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 you have old Pete, aka Stan Agate. He's going to drive the train, and Ronnie Biggs is just going to keep an eye on Stan Agate. That's his job. Just keep an eye on the train driver. So, now we have a proper collection of real London Cockney lads. So I think it's time to prepare ourselves for the rest of the story and to get ourselves in the right frame of mind. And I think, gentlemen, that that means it's time for a quick Cockney Rhyming Slang Quiz. Oh, Jesus, God, no. Oh, God. It's going to be bad. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's going to be so happy. bad, isn't it? I hope you guys are ready to be barked at. <laughs> <laughs> so Cockney Rhyming Slang, if you don't know, is a verbal aspect affectation of East and South London Cockneys and where they'll use a term to represent a word that it, a word that it rhymes with as sort of a street code. So uh, I'll give you guys some cockney rhyming slang, and all you guys have to tell me is what it means. So we'll start out with uh, apples and pears. I got, I got fucking nothing here. Balls. But you heard the term. You heard the rhyming <laughs> slang, right? <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, going up me apples and pears, eh? Let's just, get through, let's just get through this as quickly as possible. Stairs. It means stairs. Oh, this is going to... Let's just get through this, this as quickly as possible because this is not working. Trouble and strife. <laughs> Even Guy Ritchie uses subtitles when he uses yeah, rhyming slang because yeah, nobody funny. fucking knows what they're saying. Let's just buzz, let's just buzz through these. <laughs> Trouble and strife. Anybody? Okay, it's right on the tip of Kyle's tongue. I can, I can, I can see it right, already. It's white. We're tied at zero. <laughs> Frog and toad. They found him lying in the frog and It's toe. on the road. Mm -hmm. Chevy Chase is in your face. Thank Bird's you. nest is chest. Right. We, yeah. yeah. Dog and bone is telephone. We have Rosie Lee, which is a cup of tea. The cock and hen, which is a ten. A ten-pound note, specifically. Cuts and scratches, which are matches. The oily rag, which is a cigarette. We have uh, raspberry tart, which is uh, a cockney running slang for a fart. Uh, this is one of my personal favorites. Battle Cruiser, which is a, uh, a pub or bar, because slang in... Uh, England for a pub or a bar, especially in London, is a boozer. So, me and your lads, we're going down a battle cruiser. Going down to uh, have a drink. And then there's one of my personal favorites, Jack and Danny. So, uh, Jack and Danny is uh, cockney rhyming slang for a little term called Fanny. And though we uh, 
we think of that as being a term for a butt here in the United States. It in, does uh, not. In the UK, it does not the translate. Term, it's the term for uh, let's uh, the front bottom. <laughs> yeah, is, which is why uh, it is the uh, what was what was the what was the reference we made a, a while back the female pudendum the pudendum uh, don't don't say fanny pack traveling abroad because fanny packs here are only a thing domestically don't yeah they you shouldn't get, even be a thing domestically you get weird looks <laughs> so whenever uh, you use the word yeah, fanny so pack really which I, my I, father I, uses yeah. loudly. <laughs> Uh, so, by the See, way, I would have learned this a lot. My Fair Lady would have been a much better movie if Audrey Hepburn started using these terms. Sure, yeah. <laughs> if she was well-classed and they made her a cockney. Her <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Let's do it backwards. <laughs> she showed her Jack and Danny. Oh, I'd love to, I would have loved to have seen her Jack and Danny. It's, uh, the rain in Spain falls mostly on the Jack and Danny. <laughs> Game. <laughs> Man, I'm so glad we really embraced the spirit of the Cockney rhyming slang quiz. I'm glad I took the time to put that together, you fuckers. Hey, well done, man. Like I said, even even this whole episode is Rob is good at accents. No one else is. Let's rub that in. Oh no, we're about to we're about to discover that I am very very bad at Cockney. I will. I here. I, where's Padre? Can you grab me? I, I don't know where my wallet. I'll pay you five dollars out of my wallet if you just don't do that. <laughs> we just we just don't do that. I don't give I don't five, five bucks hey. that bad. Deal with it. Deal oh, with no, one. No, that is that is a communal one, and we'll get to that later. <laughs> we'll get to that. There's a story behind that one. I'm sure there is. It has many dykes is, in it. <laughs> is that a used chili? <laughs> so now that all so now that all the robbery gang have been pulled together, and it was time for the act itself. So at six fifty in the evening on Wednesday, August seventh. 1963, a Royal Mail traveling post office left Glasgow intending to arrive at London's Euston Station at 4 a.m. the next morning. So I can cut in. So something that really caught me off guard is I didn't know these were a thing. Yeah. Like, so this train was literally a mobile post office. Mm -hmm. They would receive, they'd pick the mail off poles up Mm -hmm. against the train. So they wouldn't even stop. They would grab them with hooks, pull them in, and then sort the mail in the cabins as they were transporting, which yeah, is, we did it of. here, but I don't think in the states they did it that long. Like I don't, I mail don't trains know, don't definitely did not exist that long. Well, I do know that according to uh, my sources, it had been at least 125 years that they had been using because when this robbery happened, it was the first time in 125 years that, that a mobile post office had been. Yeah. Robbed. And they, so, and they used them they have been the around. Way, and they used them all the way into the early 2000s. Yeah, right. mm-hmm. they made changes, but they kept them going. Yeah. So, yeah, so in the 1960s, though, the Royal Mail Traveling Post Office, you got a locomotive with about 10 or 12 cars attached to it, carrying a full staff of about 70 to 75 postal workers who pick up, sort, and drop off mail that stops along the route, or in motion, as you mentioned. So, one carriage, though, the front carriage behind the locomotive, carried high-value items, often large amounts of cash. The HPV. Yes. Oh, Fortunately named. The high, the, yeah, the, Actually, H, it's HPV. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Michael Douglas. <laughs> oh, my God. There's layers to that, Jonah. There's layers to that, Jonah. Don't get me wrong. That was very well-crafted, but you should be ashamed. <laughs> oh, I mean, I don't feel better about having sex. I mean, he's sex. not the one who died this month. Now, the, so the previous Monday had been what's called in Britain a bank holiday, which they have 
regularly scheduled throughout the year. It's basically what happens when uh, medieval feast days meet the, the labor movement. So you get these regularly scheduled Mondays off. And they become big shopping holidays and the banks are closed. So money kind of piles up. So this mobile post office is carrying about eight times the amount of cash that they would normally do. Hence why it becomes a target. The train also lacked radios and the doors weren't kept locked while the train was on the move. Some of these mobile post offices, because the Royal Mail at this point had about a dozen of them, they had radios on, I think, about two or three, and they were installing them, but this particular train did not have them. So a lot of them had bars and reinforced doors, but apparently a bunch of them were being renovated and out of commission, so mm -hmm. this was an old car that they brought back in the service. Yeah, new locomotive, right. old train. Yeah it, was a, yeah, it was a reserve train. Yeah. So at about 3 a.m., the train encountered a yellow slow signal and then a red stop signal at Sears Crossing between the towns of, and I love this so much, between the towns of Cheddington and Leeton Buzzard in, <laughs> in Buckinghamshire, about 40 miles from the train's destination, at a time and place where the signal was almost always green. Now, the green lights were, in fact, still on, but the robbers had made wooden chocks to fit over the green lights and then disconnected the respective yellow and red signal lights wires from the switch that made them operate exclusively, connecting the wires to batteries so that the lights, other lights could still operate while the covered green lights were going. I've done that with my car for state yeah. inspections. You just put tape in front of the uh, check engine light, and then yep. they can't see that it's been on for six and a half years. That's pretty much exactly what they did. I also like you're the a rideshare driver, aren't you? <laughs> Mike, not this car. Okay. <laughs> Everybody has their first car. Ninety one <laughs> was a different story. Yeah, but uh, my favorite part about that is like at one point they just put oh, yeah, a, they put a glove over. Yeah, they put, yeah, they put a glove. Yeah, I weighed more than it. Yeah, yeah they, they couldn't get the green light to go off, and they put they just put a glove over it. Yeah, but the, the one I was like, don't worry, I can change all these lights. Change my ass! You're just putting gloves <laughs> on shit, like hooking up batteries to the ones that are on. Like, well, yeah, that's the it one was thing. It. Well, they did make one wooden shock to put yeah. over a light, but they forgot they needed two, so... Yeah, they, they popped the one. They put a wooden shock over the first light, and then a glove over the second Yeah, but just, like, the guy's like, don't worry, I can change him. And he just, like, he's back there fiddling, they all just turn on. He's like, yeah. got him. And <laughs> what? Got him. And as, I, as I recall, wasn't the wasn't the red light, the battery thing, wasn't it powered basically through a transistor radio? It was, it was hot-wired from some... It was a battery from a transistor yeah. radio, yeah. Yeah, it was... So, the, the driver of the train, 58-year-old Jack Mills, had, had obeyed what he believed to be the actual signals, but since these signals were unexpected at this time, he sent the other member of the locomotive's crew, 26-year-old David Whitby, along the line to the telephones on the rail that were at the railways always placed at regular intervals to call the closest signal station ahead and figure out what the hell was going on. Now, Whitby climbed down from the locomotive. He walks down along the line, only to find that the telephone's cable had been cut. He returned to the train to give Jack Mills the strange news, but he was tackled from behind and overpowered by one of the robbers, and several others jumped into the engine cabin. Jack Mills grappled with one of his attackers, but he was quickly hit over the head several times from behind with a kosh, which is a weighted club wrapped in leather, and rendered semi-conscious with a severe head injury that mm -hmm. would plague him for the rest of his life. Was it from Holland? It, no, this was not, no. This but was those not, were those were on the train. They were en route to their destination. That was this, that's what they that, were going. That for. was the high they're value they're package. Yeah. The, mo the money, as it turns out, is a red herring. Yeah, and it was really a daring leather wrapped dildo heist. <laughs> Gotta get them dilds. We know the Hellfire Club still exists. We know for a fact that it's still burning the ashes of the dildos. <laughs> I do like that. Like uh, upon further inspection, because I heard there was a caution. Yeah. Like the man, they, they, he, he received a caution. I was like, what the fuck is that? A caution is just a crowbar. 
it's a crowbar. It's it's sort of a general term now. Yeah, it's, it's but what they yeah. used was it was a crowbar. And like it's you're we're gonna get into a lot of shit that I kinda had to Google because like English people for whatever reason, English people and Australian people just decide that they need a language that only they can speak. A totally indecipherable language that only they can speak. It is interesting though, because they have all these tools, but what they were carrying were guns. No, they certainly weren't. And this was at a time when guns had not been basically, essentially banned uh, on the island the either. the punishment for them was still... So very, committing very a crime similar. in the UK with a firearm at that time was essentially a life sentence. And we'll find out later they regretted there those was decisions. Also, there but. was also, with, with a few exceptions, there was kind of a street code yeah. among the London criminal underworld that you weren't going to use guns. Mm. It was... There, was, there were plenty of stabbings and slashings and, yeah. and beatings and stuff like that, but there weren't that many shootings. There were some, of course, but it wasn't it wasn't like Chicago in the 20s. No, 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 no. It was Whenever like bullets were free and dudes were just like spraying out the back of... <laughs> yeah. No, the Brits never got to that point. Which yeah, I always find interesting because in the early late 50s and early 60s, World War II surplus is... No, it's everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah. yeah, and these men were... A lot of these guys have formal military training. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, but like when it case, says they yeah. were kicked out of the army, like one, I don't remember who it was, but he was he was in like his third year whenever mm-hmm. he was kicked out. So it's not yeah. like he didn't show up for basic yeah. and they sent him to Leavenworth. No, it's Jimmy, Jimmy White was one of about two thousand British paratroopers to actually get away from the Germans at the Battle of Arnhem, which was one of the most savage close mm-hmm. yeah. quarter yeah. battles of the war. I mean, these were not. Yeah, yeah there's some these were guys. Soft yeah. people. There's these some guys hard went men out of here. their way to not kill people while doing this. Yeah. Although they, they, just, they came very, very close with Jack Mills. They yeah. did. He gets he gets a severe head injury. He and Whitby are cuffed together and stuffed into the engine compartment. So the robbers now have to move to the next phase of the plan. Getting the train to where they could unload the loot, and that's where Ronnie Biggs <laughs> and old Pete slash Stan Agate play their part of the plan. Oops. The plan was to have Pete stand Old Pete. <laughs> That's a good idea. (laughs) So the plan is they're going to detach the high-value package carriage and the locomotive and have Pete Stan drive the locomotive and the high-value package carriage a half mile down the track to the creatively named Bridge Go Bridge. Which I think was... Bodie McBoatface. It's named named by whoever designed the infrastructure in whatever land the fucking Teletubbies are from. (laughs) And so where the vehicles and the rest of of the robbery crew would be waiting to unload the sacks of cash. It's now officially named Metmore Bridge, but locally it's still called Robbery Bridge, which is fun. So Weasel James and Flossie Jennings set about uncoupling the rest of the train from their real target. And Pete Stan and Ronnie Biggs get in there, take one look at it, and poor old Pete Stan goes, Huh, uh, yeah, I can't drive this thing. Yeah, I don't know what any of this is or does. Now see, okay, so so Pete Stan is in his late 60s, he's recently retired, and he had spent a lot of years driving trains... But he'd only been operating shunting locomotives, which were used for moving rail stock around train yards, and had worked for the southern region of British Rail, which didn't use the type of modern diesel-electric locomotives that the Royal Mail had used for their trains. And that's another thing we talked about before. This train was in the process of being completely retrofitted, and it had a almost brand new locomotive. I believe the locomotive was built in either yeah. 1959 or 1960. Yeah. yeah, which by train standards is incredibly young. Like, it's very, very new. I don't want to downplay engineers... You're on a track. You got to move it. What was it? Eight hundred yards. Mm-hmm. Have you ever it can't be. Have you ever seen the front of a train? Of an engine? Yeah. I've n- I've stood in them. They are terrifying. It's yeah, like it's aircraft, wild. Like, yeah, there's weird valves and shit all yeah. over the place. Like, even though they have modernized to a degree, and I'm sure they're even more modern now, 
if I put you in run and like if you and I got into one right now, we couldn't start this son of a bitch. There's literally also doing it, but I would have thought it had already been started. Well, I mean, it was like, already running, so well, okay, it would so be even if it was go, go, go back. But this is also happening in the middle of the night with sheer chaos going, and on you're right. on the clock because now people know that something bad is happening. Yeah. It's like learning how to fly a, a prop plane and then being dropped in front of an airliner. Like, it's entirely different. Yeah, how hard could that be? You just get in a plane and go up. Like, yeah, it's, it's, it's incredibly fucking to an F-18. Yeah. So, the robbers, they stop, they have a thing. They tell Ronnie and Pete Stan to get the hell out of the locomotive and to jump in a car and head down to the bridge to help unload, uh, unload the loot. And they decide to uncuff poor groggy Jack Mills from his body and make him drive the train down to Bridge Goat Bridge to the stopping point that they had indicated by a white sheet stretched across mm. poles between the tracks. It's like a finish line at a marathon. You did it! So once, <laughs> Yay. So once the train reached the bridge, the robbers' assault force, that's a big fucking air force, busts into the high-value package carriage, which no one inside had thought to lock, No. and set about overpowering the five postal workers inside. Now I'm going to take a stab and say that this was probably pretty easy because we're talking about British postal workers in the 1960s. They're just made of tea and cigarette ash. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm guessing they're not the, the toughest, fightiest bunch around. By the way, Dad, when you hear this, I am very sorry. <laughs> and Rob's out of the will. <laughs> oh, please, I was out years ago. They were So they were made to lie face down in a corner of the carriage, and Jack Mills and David Whitby are brought in and made to lie down beside them. So 128 mailbags of cash and high-value packages were contained in the carriage, containing mostly one-pound and five-pound notes, as well as ten-shilling notes worth half a pound each, and some notes from Scotland and Northern Ireland which were technically the right kind of currency, but the, the, I, I don't, we don't have time to get into the difference between the Scottish pound and the English pound. It's, that's, a, that's a road I don't want to go down. So the crew formed a human chain to load these sacks into two Land Rovers with matching license plates and an Austin Lodestar truck, and it's estimated that the total weight of the bags was in excess of two and a half tons. Tons. Yeah, it's, it's literally tons of money, yep. which yeah. is pretty wild. So Bruce Reynolds had arranged for the grab to have a very tight 30-minute time limit. And at that exact time, he gives a whistle and the wrap-up signal, and the crew, having loaded 120 of the 128 sacks, starts their getaway procedure. Now, it's been calculated that the money left behind was valued at 131,000 pounds. That's about three and a half million in today's dollars. But Reynolds' time limit was strict, and the crew just left those eight sacks behind. So the gang jumped in their vehicles and sped off in three separate directions along minor roads, listening to the VHF radio installed in each vehicle to keep an ear on police broadcasts. After journeys taking between 45 and 60 minutes, they all rendezvoused at a rundown property called Leather Slave Farm, 27 miles from the scene of the crime, which had been purchased two months earlier to be used as their hideout. The first police broadcasts were being made at about 4.30, roughly the same time the crew got back to Leather Slave Farm, after a postal worker from a section of the train that had been left behind finding all the line phone cables cut, caught a passing freight train up to Cheddington Station and phoned the cops from there. And this is where the robbers caught the line over the radio, and I'm about to lose $5, quote, A robbery's <laughs> been committed, and you'll not believe this, they've only gone and stolen the bloody train! So once back at Leatherslade, the first order of business was to count the loot, which in total was determined to amount to a sum of 2631000 dollars 684 pounds. As I said before, nearly 72 million in today's dollars. That's a weird way 
to like it, depending on the article you read, depending on the book that you read, the way that they convert the money is really convoluted. Yeah, uh, some people say it's as much as like a hundred and twenty million today. Uh, there was one, and I believe it was stuff you should know. Said it was yeah. sixty nine million. Nice, nice. nice. Well, so but you I, have to so convert by. I can tell you the system I used. You, so I did you I go went, from dollars so to pounds in a year? So what I did is I calculated the inflation rate of the pound between 1963 and 2020, and when I was writing the episode um, the first time, because I lost my first recording of this episode, and then when I was writing it the second time, I checked the current exchange rates and just multiplied it by that. Yeah, like it, I guess some people like did a currency conversion and then to the dollar, and that, then like by the year, I don't know. But yeah, somebody said it was much as 110. People are also using secondary sources yeah. when the exchange rate yeah. is different. Yeah, and, and others went, it was stronger. between well, 50 and 100. Well, there was even about exactly how much money was lost. Yeah, well they, they were, the sources put it at anywhere between 2.73 million and about 2.55 million. Mm-hmm. So the number I gave us was the exact average. Yeah. What was the Scottish pounds exchange rate in terms of sheep? 69 pounds for a sheep. Yeah, yeah nice. nice. Yeah. 420 pounds for the whole herd. Ooh, <laughs> look out. Because in Scotland, oh, you want to buy yeah. a ball. Ooh. Just remember, boys, that means no. <laughs> so the take is that also means yes. That's true. Anyway, they took a fuckload of money. <laughs> so, and, that, and of that money, that take was divided into 17 equal full shares for the robbery crew and the informants, each totaling 147,000 pounds, just a hair shy of $4 million today, and several smaller partial shares called drinks for associates and people who played a less direct role in the heist. Uh, for example, the person who bought Leather Slave Farm was given a drink of twelve thousand pounds in return for spending five thousand to purchase the property. Kyle, I, I'm sorry. You get over there. You miss the table. There, Every time you say Leather Slave, I hear Leather Slave, and I don't know how to process <laughs> it. And the faster you say it, the more that comes out. I just leather, <laughs> leather Slave Farm, where the safe word is indeed. Bang. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Now I'm losing. Now I'm losing. Because it ended up being a sheep farmer that gave the cops the tip off about leather slaves. And I was the bad guy for playing flute music. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Chris is tall style. Chris (laughs) Chris is really off base here with flute music, and Kyle's over here talking about ball gags and sheep. (laughs) So as they listen to the police reports, stop looking at my dog like that, Kyle. Robbers become alarmed. Put away those hip wares! <laughs> what? Well, you gotta have something to put the back legs in. <laughs> you weren't on that episode. <laughs> that was Gregor McGregor. You weren't on that episode. There's another throwback joke. I was Gregor McGregor. Were you? Yeah, you were. Yeah, he was on the Yeah, he was. Pod. I was. Oh, shit. Yeah, it was Padre. Well, what, 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 Chris, I don't remember. Ah, I'll go back through our life. I don't remember what I had for lunch a day ago. <laughs> I, I rely, look, we rely on me to tell the story. We rely on you guys for the bestiality jokes. I'm intermittent fasting, okay? And that just means I'm too poor to oh, eat every day. Yes. That's why I lost 100 pounds. That's right. I was also too we poor to eat. We still have a piece. Worse. The, the, uh, the, the run still continues. Another, another week, another bestiality joke. Yes. <laughs> Man, what a legacy. <laughs> so, fuck, where was I? Okay. 
All I know <laughs> is that the streak is still alive. Okay, we need to, I, I, almost, I almost said unironically we need to get this turn back on the track. Oh, <laughs> Did I mention Steve Bonnet? No. So... <laughs> This has gone totally off the rails. We're still, and this is so beautiful. Like, you know what's fantastic? Exchange rates started this. We went from exchange rates to bestiality in like 40 seconds. Yeah, we're all a bit of a wild card at a party. Well, yeah. <sighs> my work here is done. So the robbers are listening to the police reports, and they become somewhat alarmed. So the police had correctly guessed that they had gone to ground somewhere within 30 miles of the crime scene. It could have had something to and do with the fact... And Leatherslave Farm was 27 miles from the crime scene. It could have had something to do with the fact that the men on the train that, that had subdued the postal workers loudly yelled, Don't move for 30 minutes! Yeah, it wasn't smart. Yeah. <laughs> And so they calculate. That's how they calculate. I bet the you it was a guy in a bowler hat, <laughs> a fucking fedora. Well, no, they were the bowler hat gang. Yeah. I, okay. You, okay. I understand that I'm the history guy here, but you guys do realize that the cheeky Victorian sensibility in England ended at the end of the Victorian era. But did the bowler hat gang not wear bowler hats? It's disrespectful. I, it's, just, yeah. it's, it's flagrant false advertising. Oh, God. To be fair, though, this was the same year that the character of Oddjob was introduced to the James Bond universe. And it vilified the bowler hat forever. Yes. <laughs> it, up to and including Malcolm McDowell in Clockwork Orange. Yeah, fair. especially Malcolm McDowell in Clockwork Orange. I mean, at but least Oddjob didn't kill anyone. Like the parody version from Austin Powers. <laughs> Your random task, show them what you'll do. <laughs> literally. Oh, it's the shoe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of like so, bonked Austin yeah, Powers. So, they, they calculated, so the cops calculated that in 30 minutes you could drive a fast car 30 miles. So that's how they came up with their number for the perimeter. And the cops set up a dragnet search sure, that was sure to eventually uncover the hideout at some point. So the plan was originally to hide out on the farm until Sunday, bearing in mind that it's Thursday morning at this point, but the police response prompted the gang to shift the plan forward for leaving the farm to the next day. So Brian Field showed up later in the morning to collect his share and to help in the acquisition of vehicles to get the gang out of Buckinghamshire since their original vehicles had been seen by the train crew. So Field drove Roy James to London in one vehicle, then they would each return in their own vehicle and pick someone else up, and then they, then those four people would then return with four cars until you eventually had enough vehicles to transport everybody and all the loot out there. So, meanwhile, the license plates for the two Land Rovers were switched out, and the Lodestar truck was hastily repainted a garish yellow. Uh, I couldn't find a source that actually said what color it was beforehand. I'm guessing not garish yellow. Um, yeah, what if it was yellow? <laughs> that's all the paint we had man that's a look busy kind of job right there everyone else is doing something I gotta figure out something to do yeah that's why PennDOT trucks are yellow yeah. so, so Brian Field is supposed to come back after everyone was gone with an associate known only to this day as Mark and burn the farm down getting rid of any evidence of the gang's presence after the gang members had wiped the farm buildings down to get rid of fingerprints and everything was to the gang's credit completed by Friday night, except for one key task. So Chaz Wilson phoned Brian Field on Monday morning to check whether or not the farm had been burnt down because nothing had showed up in the Buckinghamshire newspapers about a big farm fire. And he didn't believe Field's assurances that the deed had actually been done. So they call a meeting the next morning, and Field is finally forced to admit that he had failed to torch the farm. It's a So yeah, so in a 2012 documentary, Bruce Reynolds' son said, and I quote, the boatwright was paid to basically go back to the farm and burn the bugger down up and did himself a runner. 
Translation, he didn't do it. Yeah, he, he elected not to. Yeah. So Wilson was so incensed that he left on field and attempted to strangle him to death and had to be restrained and pulled off of him by multiple members of the gang. So a decision was made to go back to the farm and finish the job, which was a ballsy move considering mm-hmm. how close the dragnet was getting. But by this time they were ready to go, they finally catch a VHF radio report stating that the police had found Leather Slade Farm. Yeah. So speaking of the police, let's take a look at the investigation up to this point. The head of Buckinghamshire Police's Criminal Investigations Department, Malcolm Futrell, was on the scene by 5 a.m. the morning of the robbery, and the scenes were cordoned off, forensic investigations and statement taking began, but few clues have been left at the scene, and witness interviews didn't gain much beyond the fact that 15 men wearing hoods and blue boiler suits with cockney accents had been involved. So by lunchtime the following day, with the dragnet beginning, it was clear to Futrell that he needed to bring in some big guns, so he called the London Metropolitan Police, Scotland Yard. So the Met and other regional and city departments set officers to assist in the dragnet search, and soon this was the largest operation in the history of Buckinghamshire Police. Once word got out about the scale of the robbery, it seemed like law enforcement throughout the entire country went into action. Ports and airports were watched, and Postmaster General Sir Reginald Crenshaw Bevins... Uh, introduced a 10,000-pound reward, that's about a quarter million in today's money, um, for information leading to the capture of any of the robbers and the flying squad of Scotland Yard, whose purpose purpose was to investigate major robberies, was placed in charge of the case. So a tip-off was received by Buckinghamshire Police from a a sheep herder who was using the field adjacent to Leather Slave Farm as a sheepfold, and uh, and thought that the fellas using the property seemed suspicious. And on the 13th of August, five days after the robbery, the police arrived at the farm. It was abandoned, but they found the yellow-painted truck and the Land Rovers, as well as a large quantity of food, bedding, sleeping bags, post office sacks, registered mail packages, banknote wrappers, and a Monopoly board game with all of the fake Monopoly money stashed away in another container, which meant that these guys were playing Monopoly with using real actual cash from the robbery. One of the most, in, in, from one of the reports, uh, one of the most bizarre things that the police noted that they found was just like a shitload of ketchup. Oh, we're getting to that. Like in the food, it was just like so much ketchup. Yeah. What the fuck were they eating? Yeah. <laughs> so, the well, and one of the you know, and one of the things that you bring up with with the with the sheep herder is oh no, where's this going? <laughs> could it possibly be more interesting <laughs> than the other than the other fun shepherd facts that we've been <laughs> discussing earlier? Michael Ornette's Shepherd Facts for the day. <laughs> now, that, one of the things that, that they were talking about in the one interview that I was listening to was the fact that the uh, um, in England, in, in the United States, you think, okay, if you run off to the, you know, if you run out to the country, if you run out to the sticks, yeah. nobody's going to pay attention to you because we're a bunch of freaking rednecks. Yeah. We're not going to pay attention to you. In England, if you want to hide, you stay in the city. If you go out, if, if you get out of town, people are neb shits. Yeah. Yeah, that's they, a, uh, a large part of the police uh, plan for the dragnet was for people to report something suspicious. Yeah. Like, they, they counted on people just snitching. Yeah, and that's why you introduce a reward. You get people incentive yeah. to do so. What's going on in that farm over there? Hmm. They look odd. I wonder what they're up to. I just paint a truck yellow. Perfectly normal. <laughs> Perfectly normal. Especially if it's already yellow. <laughs> so forensics teams set to work, and while most of the services had been successfully wiped down for prints, 
They didn't get everything. They found fingerprints on the Monopoly board from Bruce Reynolds and John Daly, and several fingerprints from Ronnie Biggs on one of the bottles of Heinz ketchup. Hell yeah, baby, let's go. We're number one. We're not here we go. For our out-of-town listeners, Google Here We Go Steelers song. You're welcome. <laughs> so from there, the real police work would, uh, would begin. And to do it, Scotland Yard appointed a real heavy hitter to lead a specialty team of six detectives dedicated solely to investigating the train robbery. They brought in Detective Chief Superintendent Tommy Butler. Known within the department as Mr. Flying Squad, One Day Tommy, The Gray Fox, and Thief Taker General, which is a, that's a cool thing. That's not bad. I thought I was going to hate that. The more I read it, I was like, that's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like One Day Tommy. No. That's that's a, well, he yeah, got yeah, it because and, he solved and, cases yeah, so quickly. Yeah. Yeah, but any anything that starts with one, you know, yeah, this one stroke, just, one. yeah, start cheating down, and then Tommy looks like a real ass. Is that right? Thirty second mic, exactly. <laughs> no, you used to be fifteen second mic. You're moving on. Well, I mean, a couple beers in him. <laughs> Two pump. <laughs> That's my rap name. It's not nice to brag. <laughs> Fortunate DJ Two Pump. So Tommy Pump. Fuck, I, I just. Tommy Did you just call him Tommy Dupont? Tommy That's my new band name, Tommy Dupont. Do you guys just want to like? Do you just want to try this again next week? <laughs> so Tommy Butler was the most renowned robbery investigator in the history of Scotland Yard. He was unmarried. He still lived with his mom, and he was fanatically devoted to his job. He worked long hours and demanded the same of his team. So much so that the six-man detectives group. Worked out a rotation where only one of them would be able to go home at a, where only one of them would be able to go home at a time to sleep for three hours once per day, and everyone else would have to stay on shift. He had a knack for old-fashioned police work, relying on a combination of forensic evidence combined with undercover work and networks of informants to work his way through the criminal underworld. Chris, shut the fuck up. <laughs> he was very secretive, so much so that one member of his team said, quote, he wouldn't tell his own left hand what the right one was doing. He had a habit of dispatching members of his team on specific tasks without cueing them in as to how they would fit in in the overall investigation. His number two, Detective Inspector Frank Williams, had a knack for working informant networks and had the best insider knowledge of London's gangland on the force. Two other members of the team would go on to be heads of the flying squad in their own right. So these guys aren't slouches. So a day after forming the team, a distinguished lawyer met with Butler to inform him that he had contact with an inmate who had knowledge of those involved in the robbery and would offer up the information for a lighter, in exchange for a lighter sentence. So starting with this inmate and through talking to other informants linked to him, soon Butler and the team began to gather a list of names for those potentially involved and could begin to match them against the results of the fingerprints found at the farm. However, Scotland Yard decided to go to the newspapers with photos of the men on the list and by the third week of August, the articles with the photos were published despite strong protests from the train robbery squad. This caused most of the robbers to go to ground, and soon the real police work would begin, and arrests would start to be made. Now, the first occurred before the train robbery squad even set to work. Roger Cordry had run off to Bournemouth, a resort town on the south coast of England, and through the help of a friend named William Bull, who had agreed to assist him in lying low in return for the forgiveness of some outstanding debts, 
was renting a small flat above a florist shop. There are so many florists and flowers throughout this whole story. It's were so they weird. just fronts? I don't think so. I don't think they were. I don't think so. So the landlady, a policeman's widow named Ethel Clark, had heard the news about the robbery and found the men and the way they paid, all with 10 shilling notes with consecutive serial numbers, to be suspicious. So she called the police tip line. On the 14th of August, six days after the robbery, Cordry was arrested on suspicion of involvement in the robbery, along with William Bull. Chaz Wilson was the next to be tracked down on the 22nd of August, followed by Ronnie Biggs on the 4th of September, Big Jim Hussey on the 7th of September, and Tommy Wisby was stitched up on the 11th of September. On the 16th of August, in Dorking Woods outside London, shut up, <laughs> the couple on a walk found a pair of bags with almost 101,000 pounds worth of cash in them and called the police. Dorking Woods, is that next to Dogging Woods? No, okay, we'll get it. Explain this Dogging. the UK. Explain Dogging, Michael. You brought it up. Well, isn't that you weird? Google it your own risk. Yeah, yeah. Google, even for us, this is this is a particularly weird uh, piece of... Yeah, um, it, let's get is this. It, just Google Dogging. Yeah, just Google Dogging. So check your own browser history. Uh, don't do it at work. No, don't do it at work. Uh, use incognito mode. Yeah. Private browsing, reporting for duty. Oh, God. <laughs> So the cops found a receipt in the bag from the Café Pension restaurant in Hindelong in Algau Province, West Germany, made out to a Air and Frau Field. You can just shout consonants in the microphone and no one, none of us can call you out on it. And that's German, buddy. Fair. It's also Welsh. They've got a yeah. word for everything. Well, I don't know. Welsh has a lot of consonants in it. It just, oh boy. I do like that one guy, the newsreader, who just like flexes on everybody by nailing all the Welsh towns. Hugh Edwards. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's fantastic. So Interpol confirmed that Brian Field and his wife had been in Germany uh, that February on holiday, and Brian Field's name had been found on paperwork associated with the purchase of Leather Slate Farm under the auspices of his law firm, James and Weeder. When police paid a visit, Brian said that it was a man named Lenny Field, no relation, who was the brother of a man whose, whom uh, Brian's firm had defended that was the purchaser of the farm, and that his boss, John Weeder, was the conveyancer. Neither of these guys were involved. Brian Field just tossed these guys right under the bus. Mm. But Brian Field was arrested on the 15th of September, and John Weeder and Lenny Field were arrested within the next two days. Gordon Goody was tracked down on the 3rd of October, Bob Welch on the 25th of October, John Daly on the 3rd of December, and Weasel James on the 10th of December. And is, and is anybody immediately thinking of uh, Pauly Shore anytime soon? I know oh, yeah. I'm, I'm always thinking of Pauly Shore. So, with a good portion of the gang caught, the trials could start. On the 20th of January, 1964, at Aylesbury Assizes in Buckinghamshire, the trial began. It would last through 51 days of proceedings, including 613 exhibits and 240 witnesses. The prosecution was relentless, but they suffered a slight hiccup in the case of John Daly. No photos were available of Daly, so no one could prove that he changed his appearances after the robbery to avoid detection, and no witnesses could give strong enough statements placing him at the scene. That lends credence to your proof that it, the same John Daly is the Daly, the professional golfer. I there were no pictures. Nope. No so, and in addition, the only piece of forensic evidence linking, linking Daly to the scene was a fingerprint on the Monopoly board, which belonged to Bruce Reynolds, his brother-in-law. Mm. And reasonable doubt was established when Daly's defense team claimed that the print was probably from one of the many times he had played Monopoly just at Reynolds' house at family gatherings. His going to ground was explained away simply by saying that he only disappeared because he got scared being associated with people being publicly sought by the police. And while that's suspicious, it's, it's not a crime. So, on the 11th of February, Daly was found to have no case to answer, and he was acquitted. 
However, on the 15th of April, 1964, the jury returned with a verdict for all remaining defendants. Guilty as charged. The sentences were handed down. Ronnie Biggs, Gordon Goody, Chaz Wilson, Tommy Wisby, Bob Welch, Big Jim Hussey, and Weasel James all received 30 years for armed robbery and conspiracy. Which is unheard of in the UK at this time. Yeah. Brian Field... And, and it's pre-parole. They, yeah. They threw the book at these yeah. well, and So when I mentioned the guns before, uh, part of why they didn't carry the firearms is because they were afraid of having significant sentences that they were caught. And one of the results of this is they think that firearms are probably used more often in cases after this because at this point, they if they're going to... Yeah, they're going to give me 30 years and I might as well be Yeah. Basically. So Brian Field and Lenny Field were given 25 years for conspiracy and obstruction of justice. Lenny Field, who wasn't involved. Roger Cordry is given 20 years for conspiracy and receiving stolen goods, and the demonstrably innocent John Weeder was given three years for aiding and abetting a crime. Then there is poor William Bull, mm. Roger uh. Cordry's friend. He was described as having been a part of the robbery crew, even though he wasn't, and none of the other defendants stated otherwise. He was given 24 years for his supposed role, and he would eventually be found not guilty after the fact, but not before he died in prison in yeah. 1970 at the age of 56. And the, and the thing was, he, it's understandable that they wouldn't have stood up for him at trial. Yeah. Because you couldn't say, well, he wasn't part of the robbery. You don't want to be what they call a grass. Yeah. Yeah. But, but once you're convicted, once you're in, once everybody knew you did it, you but, could have come out and said, hey. Here's the worst part. I think his acquittal came a few weeks after he died, too. Yeah. Because the, the, the British practice. government had to come out and make an official statement apologizing and admitting their mistake, stating that there had been a miscarriage of justice. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, both uh, Brian Field and Lenny Field would have their sentences reduced after lengthy appeal processes, as would Roger Cordry. So, 11 sentences were handed down. But what about the others? The true identity of the train driver who couldn't drive the train, old Pete slash Stan Agate, was never found out and no arrest was made. The individual who went by the aliases Danny Pembroke and Frank Monroe was never caught. And the same goes for the Ulsterman, mm -hmm. the informant who set the whole robbery in motion. Flossie Jennings' real identity was never discovered either. He disappeared into the underworld. And the 17th man, the one who's, who they never got an alias, they never got a name, they never got a physical description, of course, never arrested. So we have the ones who got away, but we also have the ones who got away for a while. <laughs> And no good crime story is complete without criminals going on the run and a couple of prison escapes for good measure. So, Bruce Reynolds, Buster Edwards, and Chaz Wilson all managed to evade police surveillance and capture, and all surfaced in Mexico with their families by the June of 1965. Reynolds lived in Acapulco for a while before moving his family up to Montreal, where he became tied to a large heist plan of Canadian banks, but the plan is discovered by the Mounties before it went down, so Reynolds fled to Vancouver and then to the south of France. He was running out of cash, though, and he moved back to Britain, to the beach town of Torquay, where he lived under the name Keith Hiller. His undoing came when he made contact with some old friends in the London criminal underworld in order to get in on some heists that were being planned. It so happened that those friends were under police surveillance, and it didn't take long to, for them to deduce who Keith Hiller really was. He pulled a Sammy Gravano. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, kind of. He was arrested in Torquay on the 9th of November, 1968, after five years on the land and was sentenced to 25 years. He was the first prisoner to be placed in a special unit in Durham Prison that was built specifically to house the great train robbers. He would end up being released in 1978. Buster Edwards fled to Mexico with his family as well, but he was a little too free with his spending, and he and his family were getting a little homesick for old Blighty, so he negotiated a return to England and turned himself in in exchange for a reduced sentence. 
He was arrested upon landing on September 19, 1966, and sentenced to 15 years, of which he would serve nine. Now, Jimmy White went on the land after the robbery, and is probably the craftiest and most resourceful of all the guys involved. Remember, he had evaded capture by the Germans during the Battle of Arnhem in 1944 as a paratrooper, and he'd already spent 10 years hiding from the law before the train robbery. He disappeared into the towns and countryside of Britain, but he had a wife and baby in tow. He lost a bunch of his cash. Nobody knows how. We never found out. And he was let down by a lot of his friends and contacts. He managed to get by for the better part of three years, but on the 10th of April, 1966, he was recognized by a new acquaintance who called the police, and he was arrested the same day in the coastal village of Littleston, uh, which sits on the Kent coast between the towns of Bladbean and Snargate. No, you're just making shit up. Snargate. <laughs> uh, he was sentenced to eight wasn't that the it was, Wasn't that the, the Simpsons episode that Kurt Russell <laughs> dropped like, into? Was Snargate the porn parody of Stargate? Oh, God. No, that's Stargate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a slow clap. Bravo. Bravo. So he was sentenced to 18 years of prison, of which he would serve half. Then there's Jazz. Charles Wilson was arrested, tried and convicted. Old Chuck. And was sent to Winston Green Prison in Birmingham. But on August 12, 1964, three friends who had been communicating with him secretly broken into the prison by climbing over the wall using a ladder on the top of a van that coshed several of the guards, tied them up, stole the keys, made their way back to Wilson's cell, unlocked it, and the four of them booked it out of the jail. Now, Wilson tracked down his money and managed to sneak out of the UK despite a nationwide manhunt launch to track him down. He spent time in Paris getting plastic surgery to change his appearance and then joined Bruce Reynolds and Buster Edwards in Mexico for a time. So, the plastic surgeon that he went to was the same plastic surgeon who changed the faces of Nazi war criminals that fled Argentina. That's the worst fucking person in the world. Yeah. It's the same fucking one. Somebody else goes to him, too. Talk about another guy. Ronnie Biggs goes to him, also. Rumor This this guy changed Nazi faces so that they could safely flee the country. Yep. So, So... Chaz eventually settled his family in Montreal, in the well-to-do suburb of Montreux, where he began living under the alias Ronald Alloway. Is that the point where he called up Tommy Lee Jones and said, I didn't kill my wife! I don't care! <laughs> <laughs> so he became a central figure in the community. He joined the local golf, he joined the local country club, he ran community events, and it seemed like he, of all people, was actually going to make a clean break. However, he spent quite a bit of time on the phone communicating with his in-laws, and Scotland Yard caught on. Now, the UK made an arrest and extradition request to the Canadians, and Charlie was arrested by the RCMP on the 24th of January, 1968. I don't know if they, they, you know, they charged in on Mooseback and arrested him. I don't know how they do it. Dudley do, right? So he got, he got <laughs> found out by the first person in the history of mankind <laughs> to, to like be his close to his yeah. <clears throat> So he was extradited to England. He's placed in the train robbers unit in Durham Prison to serve the rest of his sentence. But he would be released in 1978. Now, in court, during both of his hearings, the one before he escaped and the one after, he earned the nickname of the Silent Man because on both occasions he refused to say anything at trial. He just twirled his handlebar mustache. <laughs> 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 right? He was caught building a bomb with a giant alarm clock on the front. So, none of the robbers served more than 12 years in prison, and among all involved, the total jail time served was less than 104 years for the biggest ever recorded heist that had occurred in Britain up to this point. Of which 90% of the money was never recovered. Yep. 
Yeah, that's the they impressive part. They did pretty part. okay for themselves. Yeah, you know, and, and uh, unfortunately for a lot of the guys, it wasn't like generational wealth. No. So they blew through it, and they had to come home. Well, a lot of these guys didn't even get their hands on their money. Yeah. They went to jail, they came out, they looked for their money, and it was gone. It was gone. It just sort of all diffused throughout the... the and this is well, also... and some of the money, some of the money, they didn't freeze the assets... For the barristers, no. so a lot of the money was were spent on the actual legal defense. Yeah, no, they said about thirty thousand a person right. in, that, in that day's yeah. wealth. Right. So what became of all these guys? Now, everyone I mentioned before who hadn't been caught disappeared into history. And though some hoaxers came forward with claims of these uh, being these guys, despite the fact that they were facing prison sentences, I guess fame is fame. None of their fates are known. Now, after his release from prison in 1978, Bruce Reynolds attempted to start a textile business, but this failed, and he began wandering money and selling drugs for some South London gangs. He spent three years in jail in the 80s for dealing amphetamines, and while in his old age he had a certain amount of fame and recognition for his role in the robbery, and he would become a consultant on TV work and books that were being written about the event, he ended up uh, fading into obscurity, and he lived on Social Security in a small apartment in Croydon. He died on February 28, 2013, at the age of 81. Now, Buster Edwards spent nine more years in prison after his return to the UK and was released in 1975 and went back to running a flower stall outside Waterloo Station. He gave interviews, even convincing one reporter named Piers Paul Reed that the robbery was led by former German SS commando leader Otto Skorzeny, which is just, that's just fun. I'm still not sure that dude was even real. The more the more shit I read about old Otto, there's no way this guy existed. He was just James you fucking mean, Bond. You mean future episode topic Otto Scorsese? Yeah, but yeah. like, there's no way he yeah. did all this shit. Like, planning daring helicopter raids to fucking Churchill's bunker. Like, yeah. you know he didn't even think of this. Churchill's bunker was just a humidor. <laughs> and, a, and, a, and just brandy racks. So with, a, with a cellar, with, with a pool full of scotch in the cellar. <laughs> well, you get drunker when you absorb it through your pores. Don't you? Yeah, exactly. So, so when we build that recording studio in the basement, it's just going to be Churchill's bunker. We right? can do Churchill's yeah. bunker. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm okay with that. <laughs> it works out better for all involved. What's the phrase I'm thinking of? Goddard Amarum? <laughs> can we invite, hey, invite Monica Lewinsky? She's in. This is, this is the home base for the Bob Crane sex cult. Absolutely. So every cult needs a winner. So in 1991, Edwards was robbed of two bunches of nasturtiums, but he was able to identify the thief after he ran off because the thief was on a popular TV program at the time. So the thief is caught. He's given a year's probation, but after he apologized and compensated Edwards, Edwards requested that his probation be lifted, which it was. Now that actor turned out to be Dexter Fletcher, who would go on to play the role of Soap in the Guy Ritchie crime flick Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. Oh, shit. I kid you hmm. not. So Edwards was sadly found dead in November of 1994 at the age of 63, hanging from a steel girder in his garage in Lambeth. The cause of his suicide is unknown. Now, Chaz Wilson emerged from prison after a day. I bet you it was self-inflicted. I mean, he could have been epstein could have. No, no, we're not going down this road. <laughs> Chaz Wilson emerged from prison after a decade in 1978 and moved to Spain, where he wasted no time in getting up to no good, getting involved in drug smuggling and gold fraud. Uh, he was contacted to launder money from a Brinks armored car robbery in 1983, which netted 26 million pounds in cash Damn. and broke the great train robbery's record, but he fucked it up and he lost the investors more than 3 million pounds. He paid for it seven years later in April of 1990 when a young British man gained entrance to his house in Spain through a ruse and was led to the backyard where Wilson is barbecuing. The assailant punched Wilson in the face, 
kicked him in the balls, and then shot him twice. In oh, the head. that's uncalled for. You just shoot him first. Killing him instantly uh, before running out of the house, never to be identified. Wilson. Was Does our friend Matt listen to this? That's the Chicago Wilson. way. <laughs> Wilson was fifty-eight. You never shoot a man. You never kick a man in the dick. Let it be known that listener Matt Tracy is an un-American dick shooter. We've seen it over and over again. It was a, it, you don't shoot a man in the dick. <laughs> Jesus Christ, butters. So these guys. So after being released from jail in 1967, after his appeal, Brian Field was attacked by London gangsters eager to get their hands on his share of the loot. So he goes to ground again, changing his name to Mark Carlton, and he married a Welsh woman. In the 1970s, they went to work for a firm publishing and selling children's books. On April 27, 1979, the couple were driving on the M4 motorway outside of London when a car lost control, crossed the divider, and hit them head-on. Mm. Brian Field died at the age of 44. It's almost like this is a... a, a it's a curse. Mm-hmm. That, that, like, not the Hope Diamond curse, but... There's a lot of the guys... Howard Carter aspect to it. A yeah. lot of these guys did say that the money was cursed. Yeah. After they were arrested and re-arrested and... Getting Nazi surgeries. So Roy James was released in 1975 and took up motor racing, which is, he was the getaway driver, so it makes sense. And learning the trade of silversmithing, uh, ended up designing a bunch of trophies for Formula One. A whitesmith. Yeah, there's implications that he was tied with, um, was it Eccleston? Bernie Eccleston. Yeah, Yeah, I can see Bernie doing that, though. That's why I watch NASCAR, because it's murking. (laughs) So he married into. I, I can watch five minutes of NASCAR before I fall asleep. Just the last five. <laughs> That's all that matters. It's like the NBA. I watched the accident rules. <laughs> so he married and divorced a couple times, and in 1993 he was arrested for shooting and wounding his father-in-law and pistol whipping his ex-wife, and he receives a six-year sentence. He underwent triple bypass surgery and was released, was released on medical grounds in July of 1997, only to die a month later after another heart attack. He was 62. Uh, Gordon Goody was released from prison in December of 75 and went to live with his mother in a small cottage, and he managed to find most of the loot he had stashed away. He used this money to go to school and got a certificate in Spanish, and then he moved to Mojacar in southern Spain. I want my five dollars back. That's fair. Where he bought a house and a bar, which he ran until retiring, and he lived in the house peacefully. Until his death at the age of 86 in 2016. Uh, Roger Cordry was released from prison in 1971 after serving seven years and went to work for his sister's floral business, uh, living quietly and peacefully until he died in 2011 at the age of 90. John Daly found his share of the loot stolen or destroyed after his acquittal and release and gave up his life of crime and went straight. He moved to Cornwall in the southwest of England where he worked until the age of 70 as a street cleaner and was known as a local character who uh, everybody referred to as John the Gent. He retired peacefully and died in April 2013 at the age of 82. Tommy Wisby entrusted his share of the loot to his brother, who made good investments. When Wis- and when Wisby emerged from prison in 1976, he spent uh, quite some time living in a good house off the robbery proceeds. Big Jim Hussey was released in 75 and married, working a series of marketing and restaurant jobs to make ends meet. Uh, but by 1989, both of them had fallen back into crime and were arrested for operating a cocaine ring. Uh, Wisby was sentenced to 10 years and Hussey to 7. They served their sentences without incident and both lived on Social Security after their release. Big Jim died in hospice in November of 2012 at the age of 79, and Tommy Wisby passed at the age of 86 in December of 2016. Jimmy White was released from prison in 1975 after serving eight and a half years and moved to Sussex on the south coast of England. 
He faded into obscurity, which was probably just how he wanted it, and uh, his date of death is unknown, or whether or not he actually died. If still alive, he would now be 100 years old. Bob Welch was released in uh, June of 1976. He moved back in with his wife and kids and retrieved a large portion of his loot cash. Uh, he ended up being injured in prison, and the surgery to repair his leg injury was botched. So he spent most of his life living on disability and social security, intermittently selling cars and gambling professionally. Uh, he is the only known robber to still be alive and is now 91 years old and still living in London. John Weir, Brian Fields' boss, was released from prison in February 1966 after appeals and managed a laundry business until he died in uh, 1985. Lenny Field was released in 1967 and moved to North London, disappearing from the public eye. Jack Mills, the 58-year-old train driver, never fully recovered from the brain injury he sustained during the robbery and suffered from symptoms until his dying day. He was forced to take an early medical retirement and died in 1970 at the age of 65 from leukemia. David Whitby, the assistant driver, suffered from PTSD from the robbery but was able to resume his career on the railroad until he died of a heart attack at the age of 34 yeah, in 1972. Uh, Tommy Butler, the leader of the tri uh, train robbery squad of the Metro Police, got the commissioner to suspend his mandatory retirement at the age of 55 so he could continue hunting the train robbers. People are tiring at 55. The UK really is a magical fairyland. <laughs> <laughs> They're so not still doing that. No, not anymore. Definitely not anymore. <laughs> not anymore. Although, the, although I, I think the Metro Police... Not still, with the magic of the National Health Service. I, I, although I get you... <laughs> this wasn't a national rule. This was a London Met Police rule, which I still think they have in place. If you are working a field job, you have to either switch to a desk job by 55 or take an early retirement. Um, but he was finally forced to accept compulsory retirement in 1969 and died the following year. His deputy, nice. <laughs> his deputy, Frank Williams, was passed Ooh. over to be his replacement, so he left the force and ended up becoming the head of security for Qantas Airlines. Huh. Uh, the train locomotive involved in the robbery was scrapped in 1984. Uh, the Monopoly board used by the robbers at their hideout is on display in the Thames Valley Police Museum. But wait, Rob, I hear you say. Isn't there one more guy you're forgetting? And didn't you say there were two escape stories? As a matter of fact, I did. And no, I'm not forgetting someone... I just wanted to save him for last. And that man's name is Ronnie Biggs. Ronnie Biggs' story is so fucking weird. <laughs> like, everything about it is just goddamn bananas. So after his arrest in September of 63 and his conviction to 30 years in prison in April of 64, Ronnie Biggs is sent to Wandsworth Prison in southwest London, which was a mistake, because this is Ronnie's neck of the woods, and he still has a lot of friends around. Some of them went ahead, and in the middle of the night on the 8th of July, 1965, threw a rope ladder over the wall of the prison, letting Ronnie climb over the wall to drop into a waiting van, which sped off. He catches a boat to Brussels, and then heads to Paris, where he had new identity papers waiting for him and underwent Nazi plastic surgery to alter his appearance. He wrote his wife, Charmaine, asking her to come join him, but she was pregnant with another man's baby mm. and dithered for a while until mm. she sadly lost the baby, and then chose to support her husband and went to join him in Paris. Uh, packing up and joining and taking their two other kids with them. So in early 1966, after recovering from his surgery, Biggs fled to Sydney, Australia, by which time he'd spent all but 7,000 pounds of his share of the robbery loot. Finding out that Interpol was on his tail, he shifted to Melbourne, where he got a job as a set construction worker at Channel 9 TV Studios, and he managed to actually spend a few years lying low. Now in 1969, a nice. newspaper... Nice. I'm going to lie low at a TV studio. <laughs> yeah. 
in a news stage. Listen, as someone who's worked on film sets, all the PAs and set construction people may as well be invisible. Yeah, say nobody looks at you, so it's fine. So in Can you hold this boom mic? Yeah. So in 1969, a newspaper report was published stating that police knew Ronnie's whereabouts and were closing in, a story which led to evening news on the channel that he worked for. <laughs> so he panics. He jumps on a ship to Panama and then flew to Brazil, leaving his wife and kids in Australia. <laughs> and he and Charmaine would eventually divorce a few years later, and she would get a healthy payday. I'm just picturing this. There's one camera guy. That nobody pays attention to. He's <laughs> he's lunch by himself. Okay, he sits over in the corner and he's got his little bag and everything. He's he's standing there. The news story's going on. And he sees the key grip. And he goes. Everybody just slowly turns. <laughs> and he and just looks turns his head. And he turns his head back. And he turns his head. And he turns his head back. Actually, you'll appreciate this, Mike. He wasn't a key grip. Do you know what Ronnie Biggs did on set? What? Carpenter. The man yeah, after fuck them right. carpenters. <laughs> I, don't, I don't trust a lick of them. So, yeah. So, Charmaine ends up getting a very healthy payday, selling the rights to her and her ex-husband's story. So, as the 70s dawned, Ronnie was living in Rio and doing a pretty good job of laying low for a while until he shot his mouth off one too many times in bars. And in 1974, a British newspaper got wind of his whereabouts. Now, Jack Slipper, a member of the Metro Police Flying Squad, yes, real name, uh, his his uh, autobiography was called, his autobiography was called Slipper of the Yard. Which I I, I'm pretty sure he had like an oddly specific nickname too, like Slipper the Man Catcher, the Quick Man Grabber. So. Jack Slipper is sent to Brazil to retrieve him and return him, but at this time, Brazil didn't have an extradition treaty with the UK, except in special circumstances, and Brazil, under no circumstances, would expedite the uh, parent of a Brazilian child, which was good, because Ronnie Biggs had just gotten a nightclub dancer pregnant. By 1977, Biggs' status as a felon was known throughout Brazil, though, and he made no secret that he was still living there. Uh, he even attended a party on the Royal Navy frigate HMS Denae, had drinks with the captain. Nobody did a thing. His status, however, meant that he couldn't work, visit bars, and he had a 10 p.m. curfew. Oh. So, to make cash, his family started hosting barbecues. I would just want to die. He's yeah. His family started hosting barbecues where tourists could pay to come hang out with him and listen and hear him recount stories of his involvement with the Great Train Robbery, all of them completely conflated. Because his actual role was so minor. He was just sent to mine the guy who was supposed to drive the train, but couldn't actually drive the train. He, uh, he hung out with famous soccer players and public figures from Britain, and Ronnie Biggs' merchandise was selling through gift, in gift shops throughout Rio. Uh, Biggs even recorded vocals on two songs with Steve Jones and Paul Cook from the Sex Pistols, for a mockumentary rock movie about the Sex Pistols called The Great Rock and Roll Swindle. One of which reached number seven on the Billboard charts in June of 78. And that was when Johnny Rotten was actually kind of pissed off and taking his leave yeah. of the band. So it was almost like Ronnie Biggs had well, they, stepped in and they needed the both. He pulled the Dave Navarro Red Hot Chili Peppers thing <laughs> there. A hostile takeover. Like, yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, both. 
both sets really needed the money there. Yeah. And you, the, the, uh, the song, by the way, is called No One Is Innocent. No One Is Innocent. If anybody, if you haven't heard it, it's pretty good. It's, yeah, that's the thing, too, is it's actually it, pretty good. It's, yeah. I mean, if you're into, like, 70s English punk, like... It's Ooh, it's yeah, it's yeah. definitely the Sex Pistols. Like it's yeah. unabashedly a Sex Pistols song. Well, so in 1981, Biggs was kidnapped by a bunch of British ex-soldiers hoping to earn a reward from the British authorities. And they take him down to the docks. They throw him in a waiting boat to take him to Barbados. But the damn thing broke down, and Biggs and his kidnappers had to be rescued by the Barbados Coast Guard. They weren't going to Barbados. They had to be rescued at Barbados. And they weren't going to Barbados because what don't they have? Extradition. Bingo. (laughs) So you definitely don't want to take them there. Barbados didn't have extradition at this time. Oh, and then all those dudes got totally arrested for kidnapping. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So Barbados sends these guys back to Britain where they are arrested upon landing for kidnapping. And Biggs just gets a free plane ticket back to the Now, I don't know if they served any time, Ray, but I know that they were arrested for they were, kidnapping. They were arrested, but they, they weren't. But I can uh, imagine that they wouldn't have served a lot of guilty. time because everybody super hated Ronnie Biggs because yeah. he's a shitty dude. So he continued his ways of selling his publicity and singing vocals on quite a lot of punk tracks, mostly for South American bands throughout the 80s and 90s, until 1997, Brazil finally ratified an extradition treaty with the UK, who put in a formal extradition request... And Brazil tells him to go take a long walk off a short pier. Brazil goes, hey, uh, now that we have extradition, can you extradite Ronnie Biggs? And Brazil went, fuck off. No. (laughs) (laughs) Beat it, geeks. Which gives Biggs the right to live in Brazil for the rest of his life. But Ronnie, I don't know why, ends up missing old Blighty. And in an interview in the Sun newspaper in 2001... He stated his intentions to return to England, that it was his desire to walk into a Margate pub as an Englishman and buy himself a pint of beer. Despite the knowledge that he'd most likely be rearrested with 28 years of his sentence left to serve. You tame an Englishman in your patriotism. No, I think the How one... How old is he at this point? Uh, this is uh, 2001, so he would have been... Uh, 70? Yeah, fuck it. Yeah. That point, well, another one was like... Story. He was in declining health. He kept yeah. having seizures and shit. And I, it sounds like he was broke. Yeah. So he was probably going back. He was making Brazilian punk albums. Pub and then serving out the last six months. The thing is, he was singing on punk albums in Rio well into his sixties. That's an interesting life. Yeah. Listen, well, unless you're inter- doing death metal albums in your nineties, like Christopher, Christopher Lee, Lee you know? it's an yeah. interesting life. You trying to but it's not Lee? a rich life. No. And so, yeah, so he's probably going to be rearrested. That's exactly what happens. Immediately upon landing on May 7th, 2001, after the sun flew him, all expenses paid on a private jet back to the UK. Nice. Uh, he and his family immediately began lobbying for compassionate release on the grounds of ill health, a fight which would end up going on for years, with Biggs going in and out of the hospital and his lawyer and family constantly insisting he was at death's door. Then he would recover and the government would deny his release. Uh, he was moved to a less high-security facility in 2007 and issued a further appeal, asking to be released to die with his family, saying, quote, well, I'm an old man, and often wonder if I truly deserve my punishment. I've accepted it, and only want freedom to die with my family and not in jail. I hope Mr. Straw, Jack Straw, the Home Secretary at the time, decides to allow me to do that. I've been in jail for a long time, and I want to die as a free man. I'm sorry for what happened. It's not been an easy ride over the years. Even in Brazil, I was a prisoner of my own making. There is no honor in being known as a great train robber. My life has been wasted. So in 2009, he suffered a series of strokes that left him unable to speak or walk. 
And on August 6th of that year, he was finally granted release on medical grounds, having served a total of 10 years of a 30-year sentence, and he was two days shy of his 80th birthday. He moved into a nursing home and spent the next few years in and out of hospital with ongoing health issues. In March of 2013, he attended the funeral of robbery mastermind Bruce Reynolds, and on the 18th of December, 2013, at age 84, Ronnie Biggs, the most famous of the great train robbers despite having played the smallest role, died an hour before the premiere of a special 50th anniversary series about the great train robbery on the BBC, and his casket was escorted by an honor guard of Hell's Angels to the crematorium. Now, I could go on for an hour just about the legacy of the robbery, so I'll keep it short and sweet by saying that the Great British Train Robbery has gone down in history as not only one of the greatest heists in British history, but in world history as well. It's inspired hundreds of books, films, TV shows, songs, boring video games, plays, and most charmingly model railway displays. <laughs> uh, several of the biggest in England having small scenes depicting the robbery, which is always fun. Delightful. Uh, my favorite reference is uh, to the Great Train Robbery is in the James Bond movie Thunderball from 1965, where a member of Spectre states in a meeting that they received 250,000 pounds from the robbers as a consultation fee. <laughs> <laughs> Gentlemen, too evil. But what makes this story so appealing is that it is so ballsy and the characters are so unique that it, the whole thing does read like a Guy Ritchie film. And it's this quality to the story that keeps it in our minds to this day. The more I read it, the more I'm surprised Guy Ritchie hasn't just made a film off of this. He did. He made five of them. I mean, fair. <laughs> yeah, he made a bunch. And like, Sexy Beast is just this, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, and, and the weird thing is, and and one of the the truly ironic parts is, that Ronnie Biggs outlived the detectives. All of them. All six of them. All of them. The last one like, died in 2011. But like Butler, the man that that wanted more than anything. Butler went to Brazil, went to his house, knocked on the door. He opened the door, and he was like, I know where you live. And just went home. Yeah. Just to let him know, like, I, there was nothing he could do. Well, here's what's sad about Butler. After he was finally forced to take compulsory retirement, he died so soon, it's like he couldn't live without being a cop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess it was so tied into his, his DNA. That he did, yeah, that he didn't... It was so... So much a part of him that he didn't even know how to live without it. That's not an uncommon story. No, it's yeah, not. In, in, it's in pretty much everything. So yeah, so that's that's the story of the Great Train Robbery. I I love this story. It's so much fun. You know how they could have gotten away with it? They could have jumped out of an airplane. Thanksgiving. Nah, <laughs> a two hundred year ancestry of very royal looking Russian horses. Ladies and gentlemen, this will be my last episode of the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Signing off. I, oh my god, Mike. What did we What did we learn today? <laughs> what I learned hey, was, it was uh, apparently I, breaking out of prison used to be super easy. That was all you needed was a ladder and a friend. Now we live in a well, sci-fi hellscape. Well, no, here's what's like, interesting is the the two breakouts associated with the Great Train robbery actually set about a major policy change in the security of British prisons. The robbery did too. I mean, the robbery. I mean, the, the trains were completely overhauled after this. Yeah, trains were completely overhauled. Yeah, they put locks security, on all of it. Was, <laughs> yeah, they, they learned how to lock to, to go. Yeah, they put locks on them. They didn't have them. And robberies got a lot more violent because yeah. they started going in armed because they realized that they would not get leniency in the in the sentencing. Yeah, they they and another one is that they they tended to leave fewer and fewer witnesses. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, outside of I mean, now that automobiles are finally 
super modernized at the end of the 60s, like the, the minivan mm-hmm. or the, the cargo van yeah. became the, the yeah. preferred conveyance. Somebody gave the stat. It was like 70% of all, all crimes in London were tied to a Ford Transit van. Well, yeah. If you ever well, seen the streets of London, 80% of the vehicles are Ford Transit vans. Because they're big, they're fast, they had those big fucking V8s in them, yeah. and they were cheap. And they mm-hmm. and every small business uses them. And you yeah. blend in. You blend in. You blend um, in. Well, there was one one of our, it was a takeaway that I found, and I think it was Buster Edwards, I don't remember exactly mm-hmm. who it was, but one of the pieces of evidence used to convict him was yellow paint on shoes. Yeah. Now... At the trial, he said, well, this evidence is planted. And they said, well, what do you mean it's planted? He goes, I spray-painted the truck yellow, but those aren't my shoes. <laughs> and he was right. Yeah. Like, he was like, <laughs> and he was totally right, and it ended up throwing the trial into disarray. Yeah. And I, I, I can't be sure that it was Buster. I think it was him. I don't. I, I just wrote down that it was the shoes. But they were planting evidence on these guys, and the like they like I said earlier, they threw the fucking book at. Them. Yeah, they did. They still managed to get Buster Edwards on uh, based on the deposition of the other defendants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a, they got him on a different charge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they got they ended up being like accessory, but even then they still gave him a, they still gave him twenty years. 20, yeah, twenty. No, they got Buster Edwards on conspiracy or conspiracy, right? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean it's it's a hell of a story. I mean it is a real caper. It's definitely a caper. It's a caper, and the story goes on all the way to two thousand. Uh, well, he dies in two thousand nine. Yeah, and I think one of the things we got to do though is take. We have to, and 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 our listeners have to take it on the con in the context of history. Mm-hmm. We have to forget all of the technology that we have today. Yeah, yeah. There there aren't cameras everywhere. There aren't cell yeah, it's a, We don't have shot spotter. We don't have we don't the have laptops. Got notified we, after somebody caught a train to get to a phone. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Yeah, a passing train. Oh yeah, I mean, apparently you left on it while they, it was still in motion. The, the landlord, the landlord was suspicious because it was unused ten shilling notes, and that's when she noticed the consecutive numbers. Yeah, that's what made her suspicious. And now I can just tell my landlord my Twitch video got lit, and I, it's all ad revenue. Yeah, perfect. They did do a, a shitload of money laundering because yeah. they. There was a decimalization of, of the pound, which in 1971 would have left, it would have rendered all of the money they stole worthless, completely worthless. But as it turns yeah, out, like a lot of this. In they got rid of the shilling as a denomination yeah. of right. the pound. Yeah, so and, those and notes. originally a pound was 20 shillings or 240 pence. This was not multiples of 10. This was not, you know, a 10 Yeah, whenever scale. they went to a base 10 scale. And then in 71, they switched to a base 10 scale. And everybody's like, well, it's no big deal. Well, no, these guys are not going to wait till 1971 to flip this money. So they were very yeah. good at flipping the money. And we did learn that Limey's fucking love snitching. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Being a grass. <laughs> fucking love snitches. It's the, it's the London term. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so that's our, uh, that's our story. Oh, and we still don't know who Ulsterman was. No, no, no idea. A whole oh, bunch of maybe names and a whole yeah. lot of no answers. It's like it's. I what I was reading. I have, I have a name, Dan Cooper. <laughs> oh <my> God. <laughs> yeah, right till he jumped. We never knew who Ulsterman was because he jumped out of that plane. Out of the back of a plane, <laughs> he got sucked out of the back of an airliner. <laughs> Uh, I mean, the, the, the pocket on the canopy, the, the no popular one that now is the, yeah, that, that would have been just tremendous. Just the pilot <laughs> going, yeah, 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 get it off. 
He's like, like reaching out, dragging him off. Because you know, you know they don't have wipers. It just goes full Leslie fucking Nielsen. It's just a, a naked gun bit. It almost, Dude, it, that's the thing, though. It's it pretty it, much story because of all the fuck-ups. Is it, I, I was saying this to my... I was saying this to my friend Joe, is that it's it's like half Guy Ritchie, half naked gun. There's a lot of naked gun quality to yeah, it. It's it like whenever whenever he's trying to bribe the guy and then the dude asks for he's money from him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, no. well, I can't, I'm a cop. Oh yeah, what do you think about this? Yes. <laughs> oh, it's great. Well they they hire a guy to drive the train. And he can't drive, he drive the train. The train. <laughs> I mean he can drive a train, just not this kind of train. Because uh, I actually did do a little looking into it. The shunting locomotives in the southern sector of British Rail, where um, where, where Pete Stan was uh, was a, a, a locomotive operator, most of those shunting locomotives came from between 1910 and 1928. Holy shit. Well, you put them on second-line duty. Right. Also, second trains line. didn't... They were a little slow to evolve. Yeah. And the big mystery to me is why the same license plates on the land road? It's because you say, oh, but, be on the lookout for a, um, okay, so this one went this way, and it had this license. Yeah, if it's spotted, one, if the number's called in. Anyway. It's, yeah. it's to sow confusion. It's, it's, it's to confuse they start the doubting picture. whether they have the right plate. Yeah, yeah it's to sow mm-hmm. doubt. It's to sow confusion. It's... It's, a, it's like a little Okay, I see. I see kind of joker dark night. would be, well, then it doubles the chance yeah. that your vehicle is going to get spotted, but it's based on direction and location. Yeah, yeah it was. It was right. If you, see, if you see one heading toward London and you said, and then you get another call, well, I just saw him heading toward Edinburgh. Yeah, it's less of a shell game right. and more of just. A defensive strategy, like it. It's not like the scene in the Thomas Crown Affair when they're all wearing their bowler hats and suits. That's so it's vastly underrated movie. Though. Tremendous movie. The original or remake? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> they're both underrated. They're both underrated, and you get to see Pierce Brosnan's butt. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, not as not as nice as the old Remington Steel. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> so uh, I bet he still calls it. You, you do not. You do not get to see Renee Russo's butt because she used a stunt butt. Yeah. But whoever whoever's butt that was is fantastic. You should watch that movie. It's very good. So, uh, speaking of movies, uh, big uh, big up to uh, Max von Zedow. Uh, Amen. Swirling in the heavens. An absolute yeah. fucking legend. A true legend of the screen. The How many hundreds of credits do you think he has to his name? Uh, Two to three hundred. It's it's got to be north of two. I'm gonna see what I got. It's a long IMDb page. Two, two that are important: Star Wars: Force Awakens and The Exorcist. (laughs) That's all I need. Fuck that. Today, his game, his chess game game against death, literally ended today. Yeah. The Seven Seal. Oh damn. He was Ming the Merciless. Yeah, I was going to say he was Emperor fucking Ming. Fucking everything. Yeah, the, yeah. Se- the, the Seven Seal is a fantastic. Wasn't he the movie. bad guy in Minority Report? Which I think I just spoiled the end. He was in Minority. I, it's been yeah, I've seen it. He but was, was definitely yeah. in it. Um, as an actor, he has 163 credits. Yeah. Well, also, yeah, way, to, way, to, way, to, way to blow the lead there. Starting in what? 51, 51 52, 52, 48? He did, he did like, his first Birdman movie. I got to scroll a while. Yeah. Fucking legend. So, uh, 1949. Yep. Yeah. That's a long career. Yeah, Seventh Seal, 1957. Wow. Yeah. So, let's wrap this up, guys. Uh, Chris, social media, where can people find if us? If you'd like to find us on social media, you'd like to follow us along, uh, you can find us on Instagram at TRRPod. On Twitter, we are at PodcastTRR. 
If you want to search us on Facebook, all you have to do is look up Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. We have a shiny new logo. Uh, one for Kyle and Padre have officially been added. They are Facebook official now. Uh, if you'd like to drop us a line, please send us an email at trrpod at gmail.com. We are still accepting your... Um, what was the erotic fiction about Padre? Padre, what was the uh, what was the erotic fan, fan fiction, fiction we were accepting about you? On, I don't uh, think I don't think it email. mattered. I think just in general. There, no, just generalized yeah, erotic just fan general fiction. Michael okay, if you want to plug fiction. if you want to plug Padre into some erotic fan fiction, uh, please do. The more abstract the movie, the better. Um, definitely more pubes. Oh, lots of pubes. Definitely more pubes I, than you think. Can't have a Bob Crane sex cult without them. Exactly, right. and, and and the whole vintage thing. <coughs> Everything old is new again. <laughs> so, Paige, uh, with uh, if you'd like to financially support what we do, uh, if you think the research we do, our takes on things are worth a couple bucks, as little as a dollar a month, you can support us on Patreon. Go to www.patreon.com slash trrpod. A big thanks to the random guy at the bar who gave Chris a dollar. It is not a random guy. Not a random guy. It is not a random guy at the bar. It is, in fact, Moose, who I don't think I'm allowed to say his real name because like, I, I know it, but I, nobody's ever called him that. Um, a listener. I know he's listening to this episode right now. Uh, he has elected not to uh, sign up via Patreon, but instead gave me a dollar bill and said, here's for your fucking podcast. Mind you, this is the same That's person. That's the attitude we're looking. For. This is the same person who paid Lenny Dykstra ninety five dollars to call me a cocksucker and then say that my podcast sucks. Yep. <laughs> thank you for your service. That's Thanks, Moose. That is fame right there. And thank, thank you, Lenny Dykstra. Nails to be, to never be fails. Recognized by the great Lenny Dykstra. We, uh, we, we, we just wait for it. It was soon to make me owe oh, Chris $25. <laughs> no, I don't know, man. Nails never fails. We, we Google Lenny Dykstra. It turns out his net worth is negative $25 million. Yes. <laughs> I, got a, I got a text message from a friend of mine who works at a bar in New York. Yeah, wasn't she he, like sexually harassed by Lenny Dykstra? Sexually or, harassed or sexual, by Lenny sexually Dykstra assaulted? Then, uh, she was sexually harassed by Lenny Dykstra, and then he got beat up by the bouncer and thrown out, and she wanted to inform me of it because she knew I was a baseball fan. Well, nails never fails. <laughs> so, except uh, that one time. Except that, beat his ass. except the many times I'm sure Lenny Dykstra has been thrown out of bars. Yeah. I just want us to make enough Patreon money so that I can be accused of sexual harassment. If you keep talking about your goddamn pubes, <laughs> I'm going to accuse you. Well, in, in, don't cancel culture me. In later news, uh, I would like to congratulate our good friend and co-host Kyle Graper on an unbelievably, wildly successful fantastic 2020 Crushed Grapes event. Uh, I went down and helped out. I watched Kyle work his magic. It was unbelievable. Uh, the amount of thought that went into it the execution of it was all fantastic how many bottles of wine do you think we went through oh god uh i should know this number off the top of my head probably two to three hundred easily easily and then a wine did an additional 120 yeah and those are tasting pours those aren't five ounce Mm. wine you know like if you go and you were tasting they were tasting pours until 7 30 and then our volunteers got lit so now now that that also happens so you got to figure at that point the volunteers are drinking just as much wine as you whenever you all come next year march 4th 2021 we'd love to have you um Again, Kyle, congratulations, my friend. Yeah, it was, thank you, it thank was you great. for being a part of it. Uh, I'm, I'm glad I could help. It was an absolute joy to have you there. Yeah, um, as soon as we do get the dollar amount in, uh, we'll yeah. let you all know. Next because episode, we should have it. 
it was really impressive. Uh, it was a fantastic evening. It was a great night. There was live entertainment. The food was great. Uh, there were prizes. There were auctions. There was a wine pool. There was Carol Vinay. Carol Vinay was there, also friend of the podcast. Um, next year, please do yourself a favor and attend. Yeah. Uh, we need more events like this, honestly. We couldn't do it without more people like Kyle. So thank you, my friend. It was a fantastic evening, and I'm very proud of you. Thank you. And thank you, everybody, for listening, for uh, letting us tell the story of the Great British Train Robbery. Next time, we are uh, just... I don't know what to say about this guy right now. Brace yourself. Get ready, because this is it's going to be a little bit harrowing, and it's also just going to get weird as fuck. Because uh, we're talking about a guy named General Butt Naked. Yes, we are. Oh, this is a real person? Still living. Still living. One wonders how sometimes. But, uh, yeah, next time... General Butt Naked. No involvement in the Bob Crane sex cult, despite the... Uh, but there may be bestiality. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. Good. Well, oh, like, this is our new trend. Yeah, it? I can't wait, man. It, it, people are just going to be lining up around the block now. <laughs> cool. So... Now yeah. you stop looking at my dog. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, looking, looking forward to that. Um, yeah, well, uh, we'll catch you next time. Uh, so, yeah, hold fast and stuff. Yeah. <laughs>